know how much you know about the Quakers, but the Quakers are not known for their speed in decision-making. And if a Quaker community is faced with a decision, they will wait for what many of us would think of as consensus, um, and it is not efficient. John Woolman was a Quaker who lived in colonial New Jersey from 1720 to 1772, and he lived among merchants and farmers in the Society of Friends, the Quakers, and the people at that time, their affluence in the Society of Friends depended upon the enslaving of human beings. People with names, hopes, wishes, dreams, hurts. And John Woolman was a tailor who did not own slaves. And he was torn on the inside between the contradiction of his faith, which told him that people have human dignity and that there's human equality, and this practice that was very common among Quakers being slaveholders. John Woolman refused to make that tension disappear. He did not ignore it. He did not do theological gymnastics around it. He did not take that energy inside himself and turn it in towards violence. Instead, he insisted that the community hold that tension with him. Now, Quakers will make decisions by what kind of looks like consensus to many of us instead of majority rule. In other words, when a Quaker congregation, when a Quaker meeting is faced with a decision, they will wait for everyone present to reach the same truth. They will wait. And when that happens, we have unity. Well, John Woolman's local meeting or his congregation was unable to reach unity on his proposal around slaveholding. Uh, but they're Quakers. So they agree, you know, that he will continue to pursue his concern and they will live with that tension. For the next 20 years, let that sink in, for the next 20 years, John Woolman is making frequent trips up and down the East Coast. He's visiting friends in their homes and their businesses. He's visiting Quaker meetings. He's going to visit people at their farms. And he's speaking with his fellow Quakers about this heartbreaking contradiction between their faith and their practice. And he was always able to stay true to his beliefs. He, would, he always wore undyed white clothing because dye was a product of slave labor. At meals in people's homes, he would fast rather than eat food prepared or served by slaves. Even if he stayed in a home to talk, if he learned that he had somehow inadvertently been the benefit of slave work, he would seek that person out and pay them their due. He held that tension for 20 long years until 
Quakers became the first religious community in America to free their slaves. That was some 80 years prior to the Civil War. In 1783, the Quakers actually petitioned Congress. And uh, they were petitioning Congress around uh, to, to correct the, what they called these complicated evils and unrighteous commerce that was created by the enslavement of human beings. Um, from 1827 onward, the, the Quakers were very instrumental in the Underground Railroad, developing that. All of these historic outcomes were possible because not just John Woolman, but the entire Quaker community held the tension until they saw the light. The community refused to resolve the matter prematurely or falsely. The Quakers, they didn't like take a quick vote and get a majority rule that slave-owning majority was the way to go. They also did not banish or snub or marginalize John Woolman from their midst because he held an opposing view. They did not split into two denominations. They tested their convictions in dialogue and they labored to achieve unity. They trusted tension to do its work in them. And the United States Congress was actually presented with a petition from the Quakers on October 8, 1783, and Congress was not so quick to hold the tension. The petition was made, it was tabled immediately, and it was never taken up again in that exact form. Here are the Quakers, slow to make decisions. But if the Quaker way of getting 80 years ahead of the Civil War on one of America's greatest moral dilemmas means anything at all, I think it means that there is an important place to tension holding in decision making. That wisdom would require tension holding and waiting to make decisions well. Let me ask you this, how do you make decisions? Do you flip a coin, let the universe decide? Do you get super logical and make a pro-con list? Do you consult somebody else and hope they'll make the decision for you? Do you assume you are smart enough to make a good decision more times than not, so just kind of live on autopilot? Our entire lives are like a string of decisions. Are you going to buy the house that is better suited to your growing family or stay in the neighborhood where you're very connected? Are you going to go with in-home care for your aging parents or a nursing home? Are you going to buy the Hummer or the Prius? 
Are you going to continue down the path of infertility specialists or pursue avenues of adoption? Are you going to begin meeting new people online after your divorce or wait for more time of healing? Our entire lives are made up of a long string of decisions. And Proverbs warns us about the limits of human wisdom. Proverbs 21 says this, There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. This passage, when it refers to the horse, it's interesting, the reference in this couplet is around the fact that horses gave militaries a major advantage in times of war. So the message of this proverb is, do not rely alone on human technology and innovation, human wisdom. It is no substitute for the wisdom of God. And in various places throughout Proverbs, we see that same message that human wisdom is limited. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. A person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. The wise in heart are called discerning, and gracious words promote instruction. Proverbs says the wise in heart are discerning. What is that? What does it mean to be discerning? What is discernment? Is it just a churchy word for good decision-making? Henry Nouwen sheds some light and really defines discernment for us. He says this, Christian discernment is not the same as decision-making. Reaching a decision can be straightforward. We consider our goals and options. Maybe we list the pros and cons of each possible choice. And then we choose the action that meets our goal most effectively. Discernment, on the other hand, is about listening and responding to that place within us where our deepest desires align with God's desires. As discerning people, we sift through our impulses, motives, and options to discover which ones lead us closer to divine love and compassion for ourselves and other people, and which ones lead us further away. Discernment is about listening and responding to that place within us where our deepest desires align with God's desires. So for, for, for a follower of God in the way of Jesus, simple decision-making, even if it's well-informed, is not enough. Discernment is needed. Actively seeking the wisdom of God and recognizing that human wisdom is limited. 
a big decision for some of you who know me, you know this already, but a big decision for Tim and I in the last couple of years uh, has been around what to do with this small business that we started and have had for nine years. So nine years ago, we started a little business here in Denver called Sipping and Painting. We're part of that. And um, for the first five years of that journey, it felt like a bivocational gift from God while we planted this church. But when we started it nine years ago, we didn't have kids yet, and the church was small, and the business was small. And then over time, the church grew, and the business grew, and our family grew. And we have two kids now. And uh, so along the way, we started to sense a decision was coming. But for us, on that decision, it was not straightforward. There were a lot of varying factors that we were considering, values that we care about. It was not a straightforward decision. Author Parker Palmer talks about our need for God's wisdom, and he points out that our whole lives is, it's like a long process of being shaped to conform to the world's idea of who you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to behave. And this influences our decisions. So he says this, we arrive in this world with birthright gifts. Then we spend the first half of our lives abandoning them or letting others disabuse us of them. As young people, we are surrounded by expectations that may have little to do with who we really are expectations held by people who are not trying to discern our selfhood, but to fit us into slots. In families, schools, workplaces, religious communities, we are trained away from true self toward images of acceptability. Under social pressures like racism and sexism, our original shape is deformed beyond recognition. And we ourselves, driven by fear, too often betray true self to gain the approval of others. Discernment is listening to the voice of the one who created you, the one and only you, the true self that is you. And no one knows you and your birthright gifts better than the one who made you. So discernment is about listening to the voice of the one who made you and aligning your desires, which have been shaped through your whole life to de desire things contrary and different sometimes than how you, you were made to bring those alignments of true self in line with God, who knows you best, who made you. And discernment's not about bringing a certain clarity. Discernment is about knowing that the best thing is God's presence. We sing about that around here. Your presence is all I need. And discernment is bringing yourself to that place of union and alignment with God where, you know, you know, um, the clarity may not be 100% on this decision, but I am certain God is with me. 
and I am seeking to align my desires with God's desires for what is best for me, for, my, for the world around me, for others. Discernment is bringing ourselves into alignment with God and his desires. It's listening to his voice. Uh, in her book, The Way of Discernment, Elizabeth Liebert says, um, discernment means making a discriminating choice between two or more good options. Uh, sometimes I would say those are undesirable options. All of them are undesirable, but we're still discerning which path to take. Um, it's not about absolute clarity. It, discernment operates in a climate of faith. Seeking to follow God's call and to move towards that which is better for you and for our world. So she lays out a seven-step process, and I, I found it helpful, so I'm going to share it with you. Uh, she says, number one thing you do when you're faced with a decision, like, for example, what should we do with this small business? When you're faced with a decision, number one step in discernment is to seek spiritual freedom. It's that inner disposition that says, I want what God wants from the outset. It's starting the process out by saying, God, whatever you want, I am resolving within myself. I want what you want. So I've been taught that I should want this or that or the other in regard to this decision, but I am setting out internally to say, I want what you want. You're seeking spiritual freedom right at the very beginning. I can remember at the beginning of the sipping and painting process, what should we do with this little business? I remember going up to the studio all by myself in the middle of the day, taking out my journal and essentially doing this first step. Just in prayer before God, I'm writing in my journal and I'm saying, God, this whole thing, this whole journey with this little business, it felt like a gift from you in the first place. So I don't own it. You own it. You've just entrusted it to my care. These staff members who I care about, they're your people. They're, they belong to you. Their futures belong to you. It's a resolving at the beginning. God, I want what you want, whatever the outcome may be. I am wanting what you want. Then she says the second thing we do is we discover and name the issue or choice you're facing. So whether it's like a specific decision or just a general seeking of God's will, we're wanting to name before God what we're seeking of God. So I'm saying, God, what do we do with this small business? Number three, she says, gather and evaluate appropriate data about the issue. This is where God has given us brains to use. And we are bringing our human wisdom, realizing it is limited, but bringing it, and asking for God's wisdom in the situation. So we're gathering and evaluating all the appropriate data. So for us, with this decision, we began to gather data. What would it look like to have a studio manager in play? What would it look like to sell it? What's that process involved? How, what does that look like? Um, and then number four, she says, reflect and pray. The truth is, we've been praying the whole time. At the outset, we're surrendered in prayer every single step of the way. But at this juncture, she says, we return to that place where we are reflecting and praying again. And then step five, she says, formulate a tentative decision. So through our prayer and reason, we make a decision. For Tim and I, we decided we're going to try to sell this business. That was our 
decision. Uh, as this, and then she says, seek confirmation. Uh, in our journey, we decided we want to try to sell this business, and it went under contract, and we had it all worked out, and then we lost our lease. And so uh, that deal fell apart. And we, I remember last June, on the Platte Park pilgrimage to the Holy Land, I remember walking all around Israel seeking confirmation with the people I was traveling with, uh, some of the really wise people on that trip. And I remember just seeking wise counsel from them. And I remember one walk in particular. Um, there was a woman I would, sh you know, sharing this process and this struggle and seeking discernment. And we had, you know, lost our lease. And do we move the studio and relist it? Or do we shut it down? You know, what do we do? And I remember she said, um, if I were you, she said, um, I'm not very money-motivated. Money That's how she said. I'm not very money-motivated, so I would just give it away. <laughs> Counterintuitive. Uh, sometimes when you're seeking wisdom, what's so beautiful about that, if you have the humility to set aside your pride and just listen to what other people say, is you get an insight into how God has molded and shaped the values and desires of others. Like, what a cool thing. I just remember being like, oh, wow, yeah, that is an option. I mean, I hadn't really thought about that. And uh, so you're seeking confirmation. You're seeking to further clarify through the wise counsel of people around you, is this the right direction? Is this the right process? Uh, in our scenario, we moved it. We did end up selling it this past spring. And I would say right now for me, this is the step I'm in in this process. Number seven, assess the process. Let us not forget the importance of assess the process. Because as we assess the process, uh, we grow in wisdom for future decisions. If we never assess the process, we just keep repeating the same mistakes throughout life. So I'm still in this phase right now, but I would say one thing is um, we sold it, and I immediately felt some relief. Um, so I'm paying attention to that. I'm paying attention to what that simplification feels like. Uh, the Jesuits, they say this, if you only do one spiritual practice, if you only do one, they would say, do a daily examine. If that was the only thing you did, spiritually speaking, like to further your relationship with God, if that was the only thing you did, make it a daily examine. And here's why. First of all, a daily examine, what is that? It's a time every day where you review the day and you review the decisions of the day and you ask yourself in prayer before God, where in this day did I experience consolation, comfort, ease, joy? Where did I experience desolation? And you just every day, you have a habit in prayer of reviewing your day and saying, where did I experience consolation? Where did I experience desolation? The Jesuits would say, if you did nothing else as a spiritual practice, do that. And last uh, year when I did a sabbatical, I started that practice and even just this week, I was reminded, I'm doing my daily examine time, just brief, not super long, but in that 
examine this week, I was reflecting on a conversation I had had earlier that day. And I just felt desolation around that conversation. I just was like, that just felt crummy. I wish I would have kept my mouth shut. Which is so ironic because just last week, I did a sermon about words. And not only did I share it with you all, but then I went to two other churches and shared it there. So <laughs> to talk about what I have to learn the most. Uh, but without a time of reflection in our lives, without a time of step number seven on a regular basis, assessing the process, we miss out on growing in wisdom because this decision has the opportunity to give you stronger muscles in discernment for the next decision when we assess the process. Some of you I know need wisdom badly today. And we all are facing decisions really every day that require discernment. And in closing, I think I just want to encourage us around uh, this. If you're facing a decision right now, you're needing discernment in life somewhere, if you're anything like me, you just want clarity. Like our world worships at the altar of clarity and progress and efficiency. But just like John Woolman, who lived in tension for 20 years, I think there is a work that can only be done in us in the waiting. If you are waiting and unsure, that is a sacred and holy space. And most of us just want to wiggle out of it. We just want clarity. We just want to shortcut the process and get to a decision and get to the next phase because I don't like this waiting zone. It's uncomfortable. I want to move on. And the thing is, is I don't know if you've noticed, but our world is like there's no shortage of productive people. There's no shortage of clear intention. There's no shortage of um, productive, efficient people. But there is a shortage of wise people. There is a shortage, it seems to me, of deep people. And the thing I've noticed about deep people and wise people is they understand the importance of the chrysalis in the development of the butterfly. And you might be in the cocoon right now, and you know, you just want somebody to like cut it, like let me out, I hate this. And you can do that. You can cut it, and the butterfly will live, but it will not be colorful. It will not be strong. It will not soar because the vibrant colors and the strength of the wings and the ability to fly, it comes from the struggle and it comes from the waiting. It's like God does some of his very best work in us 
in the chrysalis, in the cocoon. God does some of his very best work in the tomb because that's where he's raising the dead. So if you're there, don't short-circuit the process. Recognize that there's a sacred work to be done even in that place of tension, that place of waiting. And resurrection will come. And there's a, a thing to be learned in the waiting that can't be learned anywhere else. Let's pray together as we close. God, we believe that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We do not want to rely on our own wisdom. And so we seek your heart for our lives. May your will be done in the waiting, in the tension holding, in the discernment seeking. And may you make us people, may you make us a community of wisdom for your sake and for our sake and for the sake of the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.